everyone. Welcome back to Resourceful Humans. Uh, my name is Corey Haber and I'm your host. And today I have with me Dr. Folks and Ben. And they are gonna, they are experts in the LGBTQ plus area, work with lots of businesses, lots of business executives in education and training. So I'm so glad to have them. They're gonna give us a little education today too. So why don't you two introduce yourselves and then we'll get, we'll jump right into things. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, my name is Ben Green. I use he, him, his pronouns. I am an openly transgender man, and we'll talk a little bit later about what that actually means. Um, and I just graduated recently from Brandeis University, and I work, I run my own business as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant and a public speaker about my experiences as a transgender man. So I help companies and executives learn to be more supportive to transgender and LGBTQ people at their companies and how to support all the people in the broader communities around them as well. Hey, my name is Dr. Ashley Folks, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist um, and I run a consulting firm, LGBTQ Sensitivity and Transgender Inclusion. And we work with companies around the US and around the world um, in terms of creating safe spaces for their um, LGBTQ plus employees. I am also an openly trans male and we'll talk about that. Um, and we'll talk about what that experience is like in the workplace. Super excited to be here. I think it's gonna be a great conversation. I think so. I'm so excited to have the both of you. And really quick, I'd like for you both to tell us what part of the country you're in too. Sure, I am in sunny St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. And I am in Little Rock, Arkansas. Ooh. So we have also very diverse as far as uh, location too, which I think is gonna be helpful to hear. So let's start off, explain to, or me or us, you know, what does transgender mean to you? Ben, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So to me, what it what its general definition is, is someone who identifies in a way that is not the same as the sex they were assigned at birth. So whatever is written on my birth certificate is not really how I feel as a person. So I was born and raised a girl and that didn't really sit right for me. It was something that when I looked in the mirror, I just kind of didn't really recognize who was looking back. and. That was my experience and so I cut my hair and I changed my name and you know changed a lot about me and identify as a male now and I'm much happier that way um so that's kind of my uh my personal like the way that what it means to me yeah so I I, I um I agree I, I think what's really important is that when we're talking about like what it is to be transgender is that we discuss the fact that there's a continuum right um that oftentimes what we see in mass media is someone who has gone through the transition process in ways that are obvious to the observer, right? Um, but that's not the case for every trans person. And so you have a lot of folks that fall underneath this umbrella of transgender that maybe have not transitioned. And I, I think that that's probably a part of the conversation that we'll have as we move forward. But yeah, I echo that it, it is essentially when we're thinking about um, the sex that you're assigned at birth and the gender roles associated with that, as someone who's transgender doesn't necessarily align with the sex that they were assigned at birth and the um, corresponding expectations as it relates to their gender. And so that's a super broad umbrella, which I think is a beautiful thing because that means that 
there's lots of people that could be swept up in that definition. Um, it's meant to be inclusive and not exclusive. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what it means to me. I think that connects to such an interesting point for me, talking about how there's such a broad umbrella. And one of the things people talk about is they say there are so many different identities, there are so many letters in the acronym, there are so many different names people have and they're overwhelmed. I think the last time I checked there were 64 different gender identities that were commonly known. And a lot of people ask me like, why, are, why is there a need to be so many? You all fit under this umbrella. And I think one of the biggest things, and it's, it's why we like to all be under the trans umbrella and under these smaller umbrellas, because it lets you know that there are other people who have felt the same way you felt, no matter how differently you experience or show it, there are people you can kind of come together and feel that sense of community with. So even if you only know two or three people who identify the same as you, it's the fact that you have a name for it and have a community for it. And then there's a broader community, but it's nice to find these smaller communities of people who really feel the same way you do, even if they experience it differently. And I get that question a lot too. Like, so why does it matter? And I think sense of belonging is really, really important. And so like for, if you're that person who is, you know, um, transgender in the strictest sense of the word, and by that, I mean the way that most people view transgender to be, then you have that label and people know that that's what that means. But there are so many um, different ways that a person can identify and feel and know themselves to be and show up in the world that um, it's really important to know that you're not the only one. And I, in some ways, I think it's like super beautiful. Like, you know, I know for me, when I actually got the language to call myself transgender, it was like, beautiful it was beautiful like I was like oh my gosh like that's a thing like there's other people like me there's a word for that you know and I think that that's the case for people you know that might not necessarily identify 100% with transgender as um, an identification or as um, a label but say you know yeah but maybe I am gender non-conforming or I'm gender fluid or I'm agender I mean there's so many different options that you can literally say this really is my truth and guess what? There's other people that have that same truth. And like, that's like super exciting. I, I like to tell people, especially in, in business, you know, not to, um, don't allow the fact that it can be daunting to be a deterrent in terms of you putting forth the effort to understand. Like it can be a little daunting. Like there are lots and lots of, of, of genders. There are lots and lots of orientations and lots of ways that people show up in the world, but don't allow that to be a deterrent. Look at that as an opportunity to grow and to elevate, um, to do research, to study. Don't let that be the thing that causes you not to move forward and advancing your understanding. You know, um, I, I personally think that if anything, it's an invitation to deep dive into a topic that is so nuanced. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I think I'd really like to hear also, and so would our audience, if you could describe the difference between medically transitioning and socially transitioning. And if you have maybe a story you can share, that would be really helpful, I think, to paint pictures as well. Sure. Um, so I know for me, I 
socially to, to start off with a basic explanation socially transitioning is all the things that are not don't have to be done by or with a doctor so changing your clothes your hair these are like your gender expression is the umbrella term for this so your hair your clothes going by a different name or different pronouns coming out to people there are a lot of different things that can factor into a social transition you can you know choose to do it in whichever way you'd like and then a medical transition is having something like top surgery or going on hormones so I know for me, top surgery was like the pinnacle. That was the most thing I was most excited about. And it took me years to get there. And I finally got it. And I am so happy because that was what I really needed. And in the media, there are, I think, five trans characters. And they've all had, it's, if you were to watch that and try to make that into the definition, it would say that it's very linear. It is steps along a staircase and you're not happy until you get to the top. So I was like, okay, I have to get surgery now. I have to immediately start hormones. And I was like putting all this work in to try to get to start hormones right away, but it wasn't something I actually wanted. It was just something that like my five role models all had done. So of course I had to do it because I didn't know there was another way to do it. So I haven't done hormone replacement therapy yet and maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm still deciding and that's fine because I'm trying to, it's not a staircase. It's like Dr. Folk said, it's a continuum and you just kind of go to wherever on that continuum, you'll feel happy and, you know, not try to force yourself to do things because that's the steps. Yeah. And so I think one of the reasons that people have a tendency to consider medical transition, well, there's a couple of reasons. One of them is that oftentimes is what we see and what we understand in the media, but that also comes because of, when we're thinking about how someone actually goes through the process of getting the medical treatment, oftentimes you need a diagnosis, right? And the diagnosis, and sorry, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I, I, you got to go down this just a little bit. The <laughs> diagnosis becomes necessary for you to get the procedure, right? Well, the diagnosis, uh, as a part of the diagnosis for a really long time, you had to have... Um, significant amounts of gender dysphoria that caused you significant amounts of distress. And so what people are used to hearing when they meet someone who is transgender is that they experience gender dysphoria and they need to have these changes to their body in order to, to literally be okay. Now the definition has changed a little over time, right? And um, thank goodness it's, it's gotten a little more nuanced, but, but it's still the expectation that you're experiencing gender dysphoria. So the reason I bring that up is because not, not all trans people experience gender dys dysphoria. And so if you don't experience gender dysphoria, you might actually not have any desire to transition medically. Like you might not feel like you need to change your body. Um, and so there are a, a group of, I think, a, I personally think a pretty significant group of trans folks who don't necessarily experience gender dysphoria in the classic sense and so aren't actually going through medical transition. Now they might go through social transition, but not see the need for medical transition, right? Um, they might go through legal transition, right? Which is another type of transition. That's when we're looking at like our legal documents and our papers and making sure that our identification aligns and all of those things happen. They might go through legal transition or social transition, but not actually go through medical transition. Or someone might go through all three or, or someone might just go through a legal transition. So it can, it can show up in any number of ways is what I'm basically trying to say. Um, and so for me, I sharing a little bit about my story, I'm transgender, but I'm not someone that experiences gender dysphoria. So for me, I've never felt the need to transition medically. Um, but I'm no less transgender than someone who does transition medically. I just don't have that specific, 
uh, desire or that specific need. And not that everyone that transitions medically has gender dysphoria. There can be other reasons that you do it. But one of the main reasons that people transition medically is that. I don't want to interrupt, but I, I mean, I kind of do because I want to bring this up. These are two examples of things that I have seen. I work with a lot of businesses and meet with a lot of employees. So number one, I have, I have experienced situations where uh, an employee is in that social transition and they're still not decided if they want to do medical transition or not, but they almost feel as if they have to alert or let their employer know if they're going to do that medical transition because I feel like there's a lot of employers unfortunately that feel as though they do not change the pronouns that they use for that person unless they're medically transitioned and so if you could shed some light on that I think that would be very helpful number one you know what do you think about the employee feeling as if they're obligated to let their employer know if they're doing that medical transition or if they're just socially transitioning. And then does that really affect when the employer changes the pronouns that they use for that employee? I have so many thoughts about that. Did you want to hop on that one, Ben? Or? Please. Sure, I'll, I'll share okay. one quick thing and then I'll let you, and then I'll let you fire away, Dr. Folks. I think the two big things that that sparks for me, number one is when you're talking about having trans employees, you should figure out what the actual, what your goal is, because what that kind of seems to me like the gold standard for people is having an employee where all the trans employees feel comfortable coming out. And a lot of people will live, there's something called being stealth, which is basically where you don't let people know that you're transgender. So sometimes I go places and I don't quite feel safe. So I don't let them know that I'm transgender and I let them assume that I was assigned male at birth. And so there, that is a completely valid way to live. And there are some people who live like that at their workplace with, you know, their part, not really with their partner, but with certain members of their family. And, you know, they just try to, they don't want to come out and that's completely fine. So make sure that you're not trying to say, okay, we really need this person to come out. We really need to make sure that everybody has come out. People are allowed to not come out and that's completely valid. And I think the other thing is, you know, there's this sense that medical transitioning is like a threshold of committing to it. And that's why people aren't like, well, I'm not going to put in the work to change your pronouns if you haven't crossed the point of no return and had a surgery yet, right? It's kind of this idea that like, you need to commit before I'm going to commit to doing the work for you. I need to know that you have decided this is permanent. And that's so like, that's such an unhealthy mindset, A, because gender is a very fluid thing and people's gender can change and that doesn't make it less valid. And B, because someone shouldn't have to get surgery for you to respect them and refer to them correctly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so you just hit on something really important, right? That gender is a very fluid thing. And I think a lot of times people feel like you've been disingenuous when you have a shift in gender. And it doesn't mean that someone's been disingenuous or that they've been lying or they've not been honest with you. It just literally means that gender is fluid. And that as we're going through our life, like everybody's just trying to figure out how to be the best human being they can possibly be. And there are things about us that change and grow um, and evolve with time and gender can be one of those things. And so um, it's so, so important to, to your question of basically when do I start using the pronouns, right? At what point in this journey do I begin to utilize the pronouns? Uh, as soon as someone says to you, <laughs> That, that those are their pronouns, that's when you start using those pronouns. 
right? Like that is, that is the threshold. Like that is the line in the sand when someone says, hey, my pronouns are he, him, his, or my pronouns are you know, she, her, hers. That's when you start using those pronouns. And that is, now get this, I've, I've, got, I've got to go there, you guys. That is, even if there is nothing about their gender expression that aligns with that pronoun. So let's, let's take a step further, even back. Like, we're not just talking about they haven't had surgery yet, but I'm still going to honor it, you know. They still show up. They still have so socially transitioned, but so I'll honor it. No, 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 no. I might show up in, in a tutu and a tube top and say my pronouns are he, him, his. And if that's what I say, then you honor those pronouns, right? It's, it's, it's about just dignity and respect and allowing people to identify um, in a way that's comfortable with them in a way that resonates with them. And so right away, as soon as you know, you know. Now, here's the thing. The fact that someone shows up today and says my pronouns are he, him, his does not mean that next year their pronouns can't be different, right? right? Their pronouns can be different next year. And that doesn't mean that they were like, that they pulled a fast one on you. It doesn't mean that they're confused. It doesn't mean any of those things. It simply means that, you know, you're watching the evolution of an individual and that can show up in, in any number of ways. And so like when I think about my own journey, you know, I didn't start off identifying with, you know, he, him and his, you know, at first I was, I would, you know, I was okay with she and, and her and hers. And then I would, people would use he, him and his, and that would feel kind of good to me. Like, man, that actually feels a lot better, but I wasn't bothered by her and hers. Right. So it was like, I'll respond to either one. And then it was like, Ooh, you know, actually, the longer time went on, the more uncomfortable I got with her and hers. And it was like, I literally was like, that's kind of uncomfortable. And then we got to a point where it was like, ooh, that actually hurts a little bit. I don't know that I can handle her and hers. Like that's actually painful. And, and I ended up transitioning fully to he and him and his. And so, um, but that was a process. You know, that, that, that was the evolution of Dr. Folks, right? That was, it was a process. And who knows, you know, a year from now, I might say they, and that's fine too. But right now, uh, it's he, him, his, and that's what resonates. And and Dr. Folks and Ben, uh, the reason I brought that up is it, it frustrates me when I, I see those situations where they feel like that medical transition has to be done for them to refer to that employee with different pronouns. And, and the only way I can really resonate is it, and to put it into a different perspective, it's almost just as, you know, for lack of a better word, ridiculous. Like if I were to say to an employer, I have epilepsy and for them to say, well, I can't confirm that unless you have a seizure in front of me, you know, and, and that's, that's how I, you know, you know, relate to it. And I know we did us, we discussed that before, but it is very similar to that situation. I grown up with epilepsy. You will probably never see me have a seizure, but to say that you, I don't have it because you haven't seen it, is essentially the same thing to me as saying that someone cannot identify as a he or she unless you see that they are a he or she, which is just, it's absurd and it happens way too much. And I really think that's, you know, that's why I really wanted to have you two on today because it shouldn't happen. Uh, I think it's also really an issue of access, right? It's not like I can go to a hospital and say, I'd like top surgery. There is maybe one good top surgeon per state a couple states maybe have two. It was hard. I got my top surgery. I called for a consultation. They said, great, we can see you in a year and a half. 
So it's, and then it's expensive. It is not cheap to get that because so many insurance companies see it as a cosmetic procedure, especially if you don't have that diagnosis. Correct. And then hormones are equally difficult to access. So it's saying that unless you have the time, the money, the resources to get that surgery, even if it's someone, so obviously there are people who don't want surgery. Then there are people who want surgery and just can't get it. You know, right. where, where you have to pick where you draw the line. If the medical surgery is going to be your criteria, are you including people who want surgery but can't access it? Like it, it just doesn't add up. So you need to make sure that, you know, that's another layer of exclusion that you're having there saying, if you can't afford surgery, you're not trans. And yeah. that's a lot of medical procedures. It, for example, I mean, a lot of times you do need a doctor's note or a psychologist or psychiatrist note saying that you do medically need that, that surgery. But even for people that want uh, a, like a breast reduction, it is not covered, it's considered cosmetic, even if it's causing medical issues. So it, you know, it's unfair, I think, to hold someone to that medical transition because it's not always financially doable either. Well, and then on top of that, um, and so while we're discussing kind of insurance and coverage, I just want to note that there are policies that don't cover, you know, transition at all, right? And You're so right. When, when employers are, you know, in there and they're making decisions around policies, you know, there are plenty of companies that actually exclude many of the things that a, that a person would need if they were going to transition. And so you literally, even if you're gainfully employed and have insurance and, and have means, you still might not have access because it's not covered. And, and really, to be honest, when I've seen that happen where it's excluded and a company still chooses that coverage, it come, it's the end of the day, it was because of the cost. And I preach this all the time, cheaper is not always better. It's not yes. uh, with any yeah. benefit you offer, which, which is unfortunately what happens all, all too much. The cheapest option is the option that's chosen. Um, but yeah, not to get you off topic. So, you know, let's continue on with the transition. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned to me that not all people transition. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, and yes. Not all people transition. So. Um, it's really important to understand, and this is kind of similar to what Ben was just saying about medically transitioning. It's the same way when we're talking about any type of transition, whether it's legal, social, or medical, that not all people transition. Some people don't desire to transition, but then there are also a lot of obstacles that get in the way of transitioning. Finance is a really big barrier in ways that people don't even recognize, not just to um, medical transition, but it can be a big barrier in terms of social transition, and it can be a really big barrier in terms of legal transition. Every document that you want to have changed, there's a fee associated with that. There's a process, right? You have to have access and means to do that. And so not everyone transitions, not everyone desires to transition. There's a lot of people that want to transition that can't afford to transition or don't have access or don't know how to transition, don't have the appropriate supports to transition, but they're not any less transgender than someone who has access and means and is able to do all of the things that they'd like to do. It's interesting when we think about and when we when we uh, when we talk about and when we think about privilege, a lot of times when we're thinking about marginalized groups 
we kind of feel like you can't be a marginalized group and have privilege at the same time. You absolutely can be marginalized and have privilege at the same time. And so, you know, it is a privilege to be able to medically transition, to be able to socially transition, to be able to legally transition. It's a privilege that a lot of people don't have, but they're not any less transgender than those that have that privilege. Yeah, that's such a crucial thing to acknowledge. And like, so something I have to be aware of myself is that I'm trans and for a lot of people being trans is a safety concern. And for me in, you know, I live in Missouri. When I leave the city of St. Louis, I feel very concerned about my safety and I don't let people know I'm transgender. That in itself is a privilege that I am able to be stealth and to make it so that people don't know I'm transgender for my safety. And then another thing that I am just always reminding myself is that my white skin protects my trans body. So I am significantly safer because I am white and I look young and, you know, nobody looks at me and thinks that I'm threatening or has any assumptions about me. Yes. And that is an extreme, I am so privileged in some ways and in some other ways, other ways I'm a member of a marginalized community. And there are so many different layers there. There is no escaping intersectionality. Everybody has different ways. And I encourage you to look up the power flower. If you are trying to figure out where you fall, that's such a great way to look at areas you have privilege, areas you don't to kind of explore your own identity. Yeah, no, and I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Like when I think about, um, even within the workplace, like if we bring this back to something that's really specific to human resources, when I was, you know, in the beginning of my career, when I was working my way up the ladder, you know, um, I had lots of concerns about coming out, about people knowing, you know, who I was and who I truly knew myself to be. And then the, the higher I went up the ladder, having gone up and, and made it to the C-suite and all of that, I had less concern because of the position that I was in. There was a lot of protection in that position. And I was actually in a place where I could try to create space for other people that you know looked like me to come in and to um, have safety and to have a place to blossom. But so I, I say that to say there's a lot of people that depending on where you are in your career, you know, you can have legitimate concerns about, you know, hey, especially if you feel like you're disposable. I don't know that I want to say anything that's going to rock the boat. I don't know that I want to do anything that's going to rock the boat when they can just go get another entry level person. Right. And so um, I have to be really careful about how I show up in this particular area in my life. And so that, that again, like I recognize even my privilege as someone who is, you know, at, at the executive level um, that I'm able to walk into the room and it's, Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Folks you know, he, him, his, and, you know, I'm walked down the hallway and it's yes, sir. And da, da, da. And people, it's just an automatic, whereas that wouldn't necessarily be the case if I were, you know, entry level. And so there's privilege even in that. And I think it's important that we create space, that we create safety and, and that we recognize those things and, and be intentional in creating safe spaces, even for our entry level employees. Like I was sharing with Ben that I just recently had a conversation with someone and they were saying, you know, there was a trans woman and she was saying, you know, that the reason that she wasn't out, um, and there's lots of reasons not to be out. I guess we can talk about that too if we have time. But the reason that she wasn't out was because she was, you know, very junior in her firm and was concerned about, you know, the, the possible repercussions and if it would get in the way of her being able to move up the ladder. And I think that's, it's a sad truth, but it's the truth nonetheless. It is, it's the truth, unfortunately. So how do you suggest to an employee 
that they handle a situation like that? Well, and so this comes back to, and this is really, I think, important when we're thinking about coming out. Sometimes there's a really significant difference in terms of the end goal when we're talking about coming out, whether you're lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, the end game can be a little different. And Ben kind of touched on this earlier, like for some people, they have the ability to be stealth. And for a lot of people, that's actually the goal, right? Or if we were to put it in, in racial terms and, and how it used to be phrased, what there are people that have the ability to pass. And for a lot of people, that's the goal. And so coming out might not be the goal. Someone, the last thing that they might want is for you to know that they're transgender. Actually, I try to explain to people all the time that, you know, for a lot of trans folks in the utopia in their mind, they would just be walking down the street and you would like not even notice them, right? It's just another man walking down the street. It's just another woman walking down the street. Nothing to see here, folks, you know? Um, and so coming out isn't like, this thing where they're like, I'm, I'm dying to come out. No, 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 actually, I just, I just want to exist and for you to just see me as I know myself to be. But if you are someone that wants to come out, right? If you are, number one, know that there's no pressure. Like, you don't have to come out. There are those of us that uh, decide to come out for various reasons, right? Um, maybe we feel inclined to do that. Maybe we feel like it's necessary in, in terms of our own um, our own kind of compass and what we think is right. Maybe you're like me and Ben and you're a consultant and coming out as a part of your daily process, you know, come out every day. Um, but that's not the case for everyone and you, you don't have to come out. But if you choose to come out, understand that there's things that you need to really, really bear in mind, like safety um, and, and security and repercussion and those things. And so, I think like, I wonder like, what can employers do to make it safer? One of the things that they can do is they can bring in consultants, you know, to create a safe space. Like that's part of the work that I say, Ben and I, like we do it together, what we do, which we don't, we have two different companies, but, but, but it's kind of the, the work that we do is, is going into companies and creating safe places for people to show up and be their authentic self and um, it'd be safe to do that. Yeah, I think this is such a, a key thing for me that the question, it really can't be what can that employee do? There's so much of a desire when someone comes out to be like, great, we've got a trainer now. And really it's like someone who's trying to do their accounting work or like just do their job and live their life. And like, especially someone who has just come out or if it's someone who's just beginning their transition, they're not prepared to be doing all of this education and training your whole company and bearing the emotional and mental weight of that. So it really is on the companies to say, okay, we are going to learn. We are going to find someone who does this professionally and not ask this person to be the source of education. And this is companies yeah. and in your life. If someone comes out, make sure that you are finding other ways to learn. Ask that person if they want to help educate you, but don't depend on them for it and make sure you don't force that on them. When it comes to companies, the onus is the onus is on you to provide education to your employees uh, and the responsibility is not your employees. Absolutely. And I also just want to say, I kind of feel like waiting to have someone like either one of you come in for a training or education it's almost like waiting for an employee, I, mean, I just can't think of a better example, but it's almost like waiting for an employee to die before you decide if you wanna offer life insurance. You know, I almost feel like it's something that should be done, whether they are aware that they have an employee, 
that's coming out or has come out, it doesn't really matter. If you don't have one, that, if you have, don't have any employees that have come out, that doesn't mean that you don't have an employee going through a transition. They may not have announced it. I really feel like employers, especially HR professionals, should consider having someone like yourself come in to educate or assist or train, uh, whether they are aware that there's someone in their employee, in their employee group that that is in that situation, because it is, it is to me very much the same, like, we're not going to offer life insurance and all of a sudden, you know, God forbid someone dies and they're going to offer life insurance, or we're not going to offer, you know, paid lunches three times a week, unless someone tells us they can't afford food and they're going to starve to death. You know, it's, it, you shouldn't wait for something to happen to, to look into it and educate yourself and learn whether it's going to be beneficial to your company. And I, that's really what I want to get across from this episode is I, it happens all too often that employers wait until it becomes something that they need to learn about when they should in fact be proactive and learn about it before they ever need to, or they may not ever have an employee in that situation, but it doesn't matter. They still need to be well-educated. Yeah. And, well, when you think about your ability to attract the, the best and the brightest too, you know, um, trans people and not just trans people, but LGBTQ plus people. I mean, we, we pay attention to what companies are safe for us. You know, um, you know, there are different indexes out there that, that we're able to look at and say, hey, this is a place where I can show up and be my authentic self. So it impacts whether you have an employee there or not, it impacts um, who will be drawn to your organization and your ability to draw the best and the brightest you know for me there have been organizations that have expressed interest in me coming on board but that when i've looked at that organization i've been like yeah no like if i if i can't show up and be 100 who i am and feel like that's going to be safe like i don't want to be there and i would you know respectfully decline and so there that's another thing to look at right your ability to attract the best and the brightest um to keep those that are there that are a huge asset to your team. Um, so don't wait, like you said, don't wait until you need it to to go and get it. Right. I think to put another lens on this, right? I am trans, and that's one perspective that I'm bringing. I'm also a Gen Zer. I'm, you know, just graduated from college. So a lot of my peers, even ones who are not trans or members of the broader LGBTQ community, they're people who still care about socially responsible companies. So many young people are graduating and they are looking for companies that care and are educated and have made statements. So if you're looking to hire people who are fresh out of college and they see that your company isn't educated or isn't a safe place for trans people, even if it's not someone who's trans or not someone who knows anyone who's trans, if they see, if this is a safe place for, you know, not a safe place for trans people, how can I really know it's gonna be safe for me? You know, where is the line between making someone safe and someone not? They're not going to want to pick that company. So it's really such a broad pool of talent that you cut off by, you know, not making sure that you're educated and prepared to be a safe place for everyone. That is a very good point. And I, I, I'm so glad you said that. That's true. I really want to touch on pronouns just a, just a little bit. So, and I do feel like employers now in our society have gotten in this habit in the past decades 
of you look at someone and you predetermine what their pronoun is before you even speak to them, which, and that I think that for just so, so long, that's how, that's how it's been. And I just, that's not how we just can't function that way anymore. So I want to hear your suggestions. If an employer were to ask you, you know, how do we move away from that habit? Because it, it's going to involve the whole team, the whole company, learning how to train themselves out of that habit of determining what you think someone's pronouns are by looking at them. What would your suggestion be? What are things that they can do? How do you approach that? And then why would we not say preferred pronouns? Um, okay, yeah, so. Two questions kind of. Or two, two different questions there. So yeah. I would actually like to jump on, I know you and I discussed this before, preferred pronouns. Let me jump on that question. And um, I have met so many people, well-intended, amazing, beautiful people, who say preferred pronouns. Um, who say, what are your preferred pronouns? Part of that is because there was a pretty big push for people to use that language um, to be more inclusive. But the problem with saying, literally with saying the word preferred pronoun is um, you're essentially saying that a person's pronouns are a matter of preference. And when it comes to pronouns, pronouns are very rarely a matter of preference. And so like the way that I like to explain it to people is like, you know, when we say preferred, we're saying that the other option is still a viable option. It's just not our preferred option. Like I prefer white rice over brown rice. Like I'll still eat brown rice, but I prefer white rice, right? But when we're talking about someone's pronouns, in most instances, um, it's the other option's not a viable option. Like, have you ever, ever introduced someone and been like, hey, this is Susan, her pronouns are she, her, hers. But if you're into calling her, he, him, his, you can totally do that too, that's fine. Like that's not, that's not a thing. Like. Right. Like your pronouns are your pronouns. It's not just a preference. And so one of the things that we, I think, have to get away from is using the word preferred and instead, instead remove that qualifier and just say pronouns, right? Susan's pronouns are she, her, and hers. And instead of Susan's preferred pronouns, which gives the impression that if you slip up, it's not a big deal, are, are she, her, and hers. Because when you slip up, it is a big deal, right? That's called misgendering and it can be very hurtful. And so let's not act like it's just a matter of preference. I think that's so crucial. And another analogy I like to use if you're still like not quite getting it is imagine if you were ordering a pizza and the website asked for your preferred address. You know that it's probably <laughs> gonna end up there, but like maybe your neighbor is about to won't. get your sausage pie and like that's really unfortunate. So you would, you would want it to just say address. So it's the same thing as your pronouns. I don't want to feel like you're probably going to use the right words to refer to me. I want to feel like you're going to call me he. That is so then talking about analogy. Yeah, I think it's fun. Um, so, you know, talking about how we can stop on, stop assuming what people's pronouns are from looking at them. I think the best thing you can do for companies and for everyone is just normalize saying your pronouns, right? So if you look at Dr. Folks and I, we both have our pronouns in our Zoom picture. I have it in my email signature on my LinkedIn page. It's just everywhere. I meet someone, I say, hi, I use he, him, his pronouns. What pronouns do you use? So just normalize asking pronouns because that does two things. One, it makes it so that 
I know what your pronouns are. Number one, I tell people my pronouns so they know what they are. And number two, if I'm in a space and someone says, I use, you know, he, him, his pronouns, I say, oh, you're someone who has been educated and knows what pronouns are. If you find out I'm trans, you're not going to have a problem with it. I feel safer just knowing that I'm with someone who is showing me they have this little bit of education and are doing this small thing that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. I, I want to ask you something quick because a lot of uh, HR professionals or employers have asked me, what is it? Is it appropriate to ask or put on a application when you're onboarding a new employee? Is it appropriate to ask their pronouns? Is it appropriate to put it on an application? If you don't, how do you know? So what, what are your opinions on that? I think it's absolutely appropriate. I think as long as as long as everyone is being asked, right? And we're not asking based on gender expression or like what we think might be the case. If exactly. everyone across the board is being asked, then yeah, not only is it um, like okay, but that actually is probably ideal, <laughs> um, provided you're actually going to utilize that information um, and it's not just another checkbox on a form. That's true. Uh, well. I honestly, we are almost out of time, but I feel like we could talk even longer. There's so much to go over. Uh, before we end this episode, I really would love for you to give me a short, you, you know, a story of something that's happened that you've seen or maybe experienced yourself at an employer that you felt like the situation was handled poorly. Because I think this will really help to see if that has been handled the same way at other businesses. I know I'm putting you on the spot. You, I'll, I'll hop in here first uh, okay. while you're thinking then. So this is one that I think happens, um, I think this happens just because people don't know better. Um, when we are talking about someone who has transitioned socially, medically, legally, whatever the case, that we need to make sure that we honor the gender that they identify as and we honor the name that they use now. Right? When we don't do that, when we don't use the appropriate name, it's called dead naming and it's very hurtful. And when we don't use the appropriate gender, it's called misgendering and it's very hurtful. Well, one very, very common mistake that I see is that when people are discussing a person and they're sharing a story about them prior to their transition, they revert back to the dead name and they misgender them because that's who they knew them to be at that time. But that's actually really hurtful. And when you're sharing a story about a trans person, even if it occurred prior to their transition, you're still going to utilize their current name and their current gender because that's who they are, right? And in most instances, when you talk to a person, that's who they've always been. They just weren't in a position to be able to speak up and say that at the time. So um, that's one really, really common mistake. If you knew me as someone else at a different time in my life and you're sharing experiences from back then, still make sure that you're referring to me in my present name and my present gender um, because that's who I am. So. That's a great example. I agree more. Yeah. I think 
for me, and I, this is something that I referenced earlier, is the idea that as soon as someone comes out, they put on the designated educator hat. So I had this, I, I haven't been in the working world too long. I just turned 21. Um, but all of the places that I have worked besides my consulting company, I've been the only trans person. And so I've been the, can you explain to us? Can you teach us? In my whole high school, I was one of only two trans people. So I was the one training everyone teaching everyone and i'm fortunate that i like to educate and i've made that into my job but for other people that can be exhausting so i think really just making sure you don't assume when someone comes out it means that they're like ready to open themselves up for questions and even if someone is opening themselves up for questions be selective about what questions you choose to ask in terms of appropriateness people love to ask what surgeries have you had you know what's in your pants and like horrifying. The, the way that I like to tell people to think about this is if you want to ask a question to a trans person and you're worried it's going to be offensive, imagine if they asked you that question. So think about how well you know them, where you are. If someone came up to you on the street and said, hi, nice to meet you. What kind of underwear are you wearing? You would be mortified. You would run away. And people think that it's okay to do it for trans people because I say, okay, I'm going to tell you one thing about myself and my relationship with my body. And they assume, oh, that means you want to talk about everything about your body and your transition is now public domain. So really just making sure that you're asking appropriate questions and only asking questions of a person who wants to give answers. Because there are so many resources online, on Netflix, books, like there are thousands of places to go and learn or consultants like Dr. Folks and I to hire and pay to support in your learning rather than just asking for free emotional labor for basic concepts from random trans people that you meet. Yeah, and understanding I think that um it's all so nuanced, right? That it's really kind of unfair to put the pressure on one person to be able to speak for an entire people group. Like, so yeah, like I totally agree with that, Ben. Well, I really appreciate both of your time. I think this was very, very helpful, educational, and, and hopefully it will help make employ um, employers' environments a little bit more comfortable for their future and current employees. I know you both are available on LinkedIn. If anyone watching this, any HR professionals or owners, anyone wants to reach out to you, maybe to have you come in or just speak with them further, I know you're both very active so they can reach out to you directly there. Thanks for coming, you guys. Thank you so much. It was cool. Hi everyone. So I am back with Dr. Folks and Ben today, and it's been about four months since we last spoke. So we're doing a touch base and really we're touching base because I want to discuss what do they feel are the next steps for the LGBTQ plus uh, community as far as inclusion in the workplace. So go ahead. I, I, we didn't get to talk about this in our previous portion of this episode. So I'm very anxious to hear. Well, I don't mind uh, hopping in on this one. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion here lately of being able to show up as your authentic self, being able to bring, you know, the fullness of who you are um, to every aspect of your life, including the workplace. We spend so much of our life in the workplace that um, we want to be able to bring our full self to bear there. And I personally think that where things are heading is actually us getting beyond focusing in on one singular identity. And I think that 
what we'll see happening more and more as we move forward in this in this work is people beginning to really appreciate and have a better understanding of intersectionality and the fact that we bring multiple parts of ourselves to every encounter, including in the workplace. And so I think it'll be like, how does the fact that, using myself as an example, how does the fact that I'm trans male intersect with the fact that I'm black? How does that intersect, you know, with the fact that, you know, you know, whatever my my orientation is or my whatever it is that I bring to the table, right? My class, my socioeconomic status, all of those things. And so I really think that as we move forward, we'll begin to do work that is maybe a little less siloed. Um, and we'll begin to really discuss kind of the intersections and how do we exist within those intersections. And so the LGBTQ plus space, it's super important and it's a conversation that we need to have, but it doesn't, it doesn't exist within a vacuum, right? And my experience as a trans male, um, I, would, I would think is actually probably a little bit different from Ben's right? Because of the fact that we have different intersections that we are crossing at. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Ben? I, I would definitely echo a lot of that. I think there's so much of, there are so many different areas where it seems like a lot of the work is still in the step one. So for a lot of education about trans LGBTQ identities, but trans identities especially, we're very focused on the like, what does this mean? What is the very baseline thing I can do, which is like, sharing your pronouns that should be as easy as sharing your name right like just like I'm not going to guess that your name is Keith I'm not going to guess that your pronouns are whatever because of what you're wearing like so that's very very step one so I think as we evolve into like okay what are some bigger changes we can make and what are some broader ways we can look at people we're going to be seeing a lot of those intersections and I think as well not seeing them so much as like a thing. So my phrase that I like to say is that when I first came out, I was a trans person who happened to be Ben. So my hobbies and interests and personality did not matter to people. It was important that I was the educator and people would go to me for their questions to get that step one and say, well, what does it mean? And then they were done with me. They weren't there to have a relationship. Like they just wanted some information. And now I have become Ben who happens to be a trans person. That can be a part of my identity and a part of my experiences, but showing up to work as my authentic self doesn't mean that every second I can be talking about my trans identity. It means if I bring up my trans identity, it's no big deal. People are interested, but they're not asking me really inappropriate questions. It means I can say, oh yeah, I'm trans. And also here's my favorite book and they're of equal interest. And it's not something that makes me really, really different. Um, so I think just finding ways to see those intersections and also acknowledge that people are a lot more than just those like identity categories, which are a part of us, but not all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think one of the things I like about talking to you, Ben, is the fact that we do have, um, I think, a different lens uh, through which we, we see this, even though we share this common struggle, right? There's still this, a unique lens that I think we both bring to bear. And one of the things that I, I was having a conversation recently about trans identity, and it's interesting how for some people, um, you know, it's much like you described, like, I don't really want that to be at the forefront. Like, I, I want that to kind of be something that fades into the background. But I think it's also important to realize that for some people, um, being trans is a really huge part of their identity. And it's something that they want at the forefront, you know. And so, you know, oftentimes I have 
I have conversations with people and, you know, like I know some folks that are trans that, you know, when they introduce themselves, they would just say, you know, I'm male or I'm female and that's it, right? Whereas you have some people that are like, hey, you know, I'm trans male or I'm trans female or I'm trans man or I'm a trans woman. Um, and it all has to do with how much you want your, your transness to be, um, you know, kind of the focal point. And so, I don't know, I think those more nuanced discussions is, is where we're heading in the future, right? It's, you know, right now we're at like, like you said, you know, what does it mean to be trans? And like, you know, we're discussing like, which bathroom should you use? And those types of things. Um, but I think as time progresses, we'll start to have those more nuanced conversations. And just like with any other identity, right? Like, you know, with me as someone who is, who is black, right? You know, how much of that is, you know, a point of discussion for me and how much of that is just my daily lived experience. And that varies from person to person. Um, and so, yeah, like I look forward to the more nuanced discussions. I mean, I, I love the work that we're seeing, you know, um, I'm seeing a lot of companies doing some really great work and creating kind of the pathway for us to begin to have some of these nuanced conversations. And so I feel really hopeful um, about the future uh, in this particular space. Absolutely. And I think I, that resonates with me so much, just the idea that it's becoming, because when we really started out, there were like two or three mainstream trans narratives that everyone had heard. And I think we talked about this a lot in the earlier iteration of the podcast, which is just that not everyone transitions the same way and there's no right way to transition. And I think as we continue to have these conversations, people will get that understanding of that there's no right or wrong way to be trans. Because I think right now, a lot of people's understanding is like, okay, trans means this and this is how you do it. And even though they're starting to expand that, I'm very excited for like, so my identity as a trans man, A, it is a big part of me in my work that like my work is that I talk about being a trans man and in other areas, I don't talk about it a lot. And there is someone who doesn't talk about it ever and people who talk about it all the time and that none of those negates any of the other experiences. So if someone wants to be like someone who might say like, there's a really stereotypical trans person and they have colored hair and piercings and like, you know, that person can exist and be happy and no one say, well, that person is no more or less trans than me because people have that nuanced understanding that a lot of different people can be trans. And like, I, I'm so excited for when we can get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the, I think the work that we do in this space you know, uh, it allows us to kind of be on the forefront and see kind of things shift and progress, you know? Um, and so it's really exciting. When I think about human resource professionals um, and what it is that they can do, you know, with the LGBTQ plus population in particular, when it comes to transgender inclusion more specifically, um, you know, I think I, I wanna challenge people to go beyond those first steps, right? Let's get beyond terminology, Let's get beyond kind of just a really basic rudimentary understanding. Um, and and let's, let's stretch ourselves a little bit and, and try to get to some of those higher order conversations. I think that's how you really create an environment where people feel accepted and they want to work and they want to be. I think people understanding you on a very basic human level is great, but that should be a given, right? I think that doesn't make me like want to stay somewhere or be somewhere or go somewhere. I mean, that should just be my everyday life. But I think when you're talking about 
being able to draw people and retain people, it's, it's understanding them on a more intimate level um, that creates that. Yeah. And if you want to think about like a hands-on example of how that looks in practice of like going beyond the step one, let's say that step one is making a policy that people can use whatever bathroom they want. So that's step one is I can show up at that company and use the men's bathroom. Step two is, do I feel safe in that bathroom? Are there men who are staring at me? Are there men who are making comments or maybe even threatening me depending on, you know, where I am or how they're feeling, is this a bathroom that I actually can use? So that step two is building that empathy and understanding and actually changing the culture, not just changing the rules and hope that people get it and get on board on their own. So that would be an example of that, like going into the step two, getting into those conversations. It's a, it's a perfect example. And I was just having a discussion with someone about that, right? Like policy and um, policy is great. It's a great first step, but it's only as good as your willingness to enforce the policy. And so that's another thing that we have to do. Sometimes we have like some really good policies on paper, you know, and we're like, you know, companies are really excited. Like we have a zero tolerance policy as it relates to fill in the blank, you know. Um, but there's actually like no real teeth there. Like nothing actually happens when people violate those policies. Nothing actually happens. When people, you know, bully um, others that aren't like them or um, ostracize or shun or whatever the case may be. Um, and so I think that's another thing. It's okay, we have the policies, right? Hopefully you have the policies. If you don't, start there. But it's okay, we have the policies, but are we actually enforcing the policies? D does this policy actually mean anything, um, you know? Um, are we actually protecting our employees with this? Or are we, you know, is it something, is it, is it a form of showmanship? Yeah. And, and I would say not even just the enforcement, but the, when you enact it, the why and the how that you give people. So if you say, okay, nobody make any sexist, racist, or transphobic jokes, okay, bye. Here's the policy, zero tolerance. Even if you have great enforcement, people are like, whoa, like maybe I don't know what might be considered that kind of joke. Can you tell me why? Can you give me an example? Or can you tell me how I learned to change my language? Or can you tell me how I learned to use the right pronouns for people? If we have a zero tolerance policy for using the wrong pronouns, how do I make sure I do that? And why is it important that we're doing this? Because people who don't get it and they see these rules come up without explanation, they get more and more aggressive and like, I have to defend myself. These people are just trying to find another way to catch me. It's like a bear trap that they're waiting for me to step in. So if you say, okay, I get that this is new for you. Here's the standard that we have. And here are some resources. You don't even have to be the one to teach it. You can say, here are a bunch of great resources. Go ahead and educate yourself because it's not, you are responsible for following all the guidelines that we set and living up to these expectations. And you can educate yourself, ask questions, but you are responsible for treating other people kindly. And this is the way we do it. So just yeah. giving people that information and the why. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, right? I mean, you know, and I think that's just kind of a basic human nature type thing. Like we, I think, engage more fully and we continue with things much longer when we understand the why. Um, when it's not just something that we're doing for the sake of doing it, but because we've been told to do it. You know, it's in my experience, most people, and everyone might not agree with me, might not be popular opinion, but in my, in my personal experience, most people are well-intentioned people. I mean, most people 
are, are good people. They're not walking around wanting to hurt people. Um, and so I think a lot of times they just, they just don't know. And so if you take the time to educate, like you said, and not just say, this is the rule, this is the expectation, but really lay some, some groundwork in terms of educating and, and helping them to understand that when they don't do these things, it's harmful that they're hurting someone. Most people are actually really receptive to that in my experience. I have a question for the both of you. So, you know, aside from implementing new policies, procedures, how can a business visually show that they are an inclusive environment that makes um, their employees that are part of the LGBTQ plus community comfortable? Because I, I also know that there are lots of employers that, you know, they, they have policies in place, they say it, but I think a lot of when you're in a workplace, visual is very important. Like you need, people look for signals. They look for things on the wall. They, they look for things in their surroundings that make them feel like, is this a comfortable place? Or is this not a comfortable place? That makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm gonna jump in. I think number one is pronouns. The more like anytime I see pronouns, that is just such a base level signifier of the like, this is a safe place that understands pronouns. They're going to use the right pronouns for me. They're not going to have an issue if I know that I'm trans. Um, there are like, depending on what kind of organization you have, there are different like stickers that you can put up that kind of signify like, okay, this is an ally space and you are safe here. That was, I know for me in school, it was a big thing. That, like there were teachers who would have a little thing that said they were an ally. So I would know, even if all the other kids totally missed it, I would see it was there and know it was a safe teacher. And then I think also, you know, the visuals are important. I think the policies are a lot, you know, the walking the walk is so much more important than talking the talk. And of course it's important to be elevating voices of LGBTQ plus employees and bringing in speakers and celebrating Pride Month and uh, Trans Day of Remembrance or Trans Day of Visibility, which is actually coming up in March. Um, so it's important to be celebrating those. But if I go to a company that has, you know, a picture of a gay couple on the wall, and then there's no uh, paid paternal leave at the company, right? There are different things where you can do great at visuals, but if you don't have policies, I can see right through it. So the visuals should be secondary to creating the policies because I hate too when a company is like, we're super supportive, come work here. Look at all of our great visuals because that's the easiest place to start. And then there's nothing set up there to support me. That's really, really frustrating. Yeah, not just frustrating, but potentially dangerous, right? Because, you know, I, a person comes into an environment thinking, hey, I can show up and be fully authentic and fully transparent and might not even realize that they're walking into a hostile environment um, and that there's no um, policies and procedures in place to protect them uh, at all. Um, I will say though that those little visuals do do um, create a really big impact. And you know, um, for me, like I know one of the things that I tell companies all the time is, you know, you don't have to, you know, paint your entire wall rainbow. It's that's that's not necessary. But you know, just having a a small sticker like Ben was saying, or even a small uh, rainbow flag or trans flag and a pin cup somewhere, just a small little indication. Even gender uh -huh. neutral signs for the bathrooms. Yes, makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, those things let people know, hey, this is a safe space. 